Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for removing our chains of sin. Thank you for paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. So God, this morning I pray that we would see afresh and anew what life with you is all about. And uh, God, would you remind us this morning of your truth and drive it deep into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you a couple of lists, and I want to see if you recognize any of the names on the list. All right, so, so maybe if you do, uh, I don't know if you want to raise your hand or some, whatever, you can stand up and shout. That's fine, too. Um, if you recognize any of these names, okay, here's the first list. Rufus King. Nobody for Rufus. Horatio Seymour. I'm not making these names up, just so you know. Louis Cass. That's Cass with two S's. Anybody? No. Winfield Scott Hancock. No. Alf Landon. Any, any idea? No, nobody recognizes any of those? We got Okay, we have a recognition. Thank you. At least one person. Very good. All right, now they all have something in common in case you're thinking, what? why should I know Alf Landon? In case you're wondering, they all have something in common with, with these guys. Barry Goldwater. Walter Mondale. Bob Dole, Al Gore, John Kerry, and John McCain. All those guys were runners-up in U.S. presidential elections. Your president at one point could have been Alf Landon. How about that? President Alf. Some of you remember the TV show. Anyway, <laughs> it's a whole other visual that we probably don't need. Anyway, <clears throat> all right, here's the second list. You ready? Daniel Tompkins, Hannibal Hamlin. I love that one. Shiler Colfax, Charles Fairbanks. We've had a few recognitions on, on these. Maybe, maybe those ring a bell, maybe they don't. Name. Spiro Agnew, Nelson Rockefeller, Walter Mondale, Dan Quayle, Al Gore, Dick Cheney. I'm sure you're getting warmer at this point. All those guys that I just read were all vice presidents of the United States. So you could have had Rufus King as your president. You could have had Hannibal Hamlin. It's great. President Hannibal. Isn't it amazing how quickly we forget people who were once in the national consciousness? We forget them so quickly. How would you feel if you were Hannibal Hamlin? Think about it. How would you feel to have risen nearly to the top only to be forgotten and dismissed by the majority of people throughout history? I doubt that any of us in here will rise to that level in American politics, but we all know what it's like, on some level, to feel forgotten, to feel dismissed, to feel ignored. Because when you work hard for something, you expect it to pay off. When, when you spend years doing good things, you come to expect certain results from that. When you do your best, to live for God, you come to expect certain things from Him. That's just human nature. But there are many of us here today who feel extremely insignificant. You feel so useless this morning. You feel like maybe the world has passed you by and you've been forgotten. You look around and you see, yeah, maybe God is at work over here and He seems to be doing something with this person or that person, 
but you feel as if he's working in everybody but you. Maybe despite your gifting, your ability, your mindset, you seem to sit on the sidelines of life while everybody else gets to play the game. And there you sit. Maybe despite serving God in big ways in the past, you did some things that if only people would know, man, they would be so impressed with what you were a part of. But now it seems God has put you on the end of the bench. (laughs) And here you are today, maybe lonely, maybe feeling in some cases like you're the only one who's still single and not heading toward marriage. Maybe you've, like you're the only person you know of at your job or your school that's really trying to live for God, you're you're the only one. Maybe you seem to have a lot to offer, but you're stuck in a dead-end job that's going nowhere. And as a result, you feel dismissed and forgotten not only by the people around you, but you may even feel forgotten by God. How do you deal with that? How do you handle it when it appears as if your life amounts to nothing giant failure. When nothing seems to go your way and you simply feel forgotten or dismissed, not just by people, but by the Lord. We began a series a few weeks ago on the life of Joseph in the Old Testament, on ways that God builds our character and accomplishes his plans in and through us. And so we've seen some episodes in Joseph's life. We've seen him rejected by his brothers at the beginning chapter 37 of Genesis. We see him uh, last week in chapter 39, uh, wrongfully accused and convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. And today we'll see him forgotten by everyone and seemingly forgotten by God. And we'll see how he handles it. We'll see what he does. And we'll see ultimately what God was doing all along. So turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40. Now if your translation is a little different, as I tell you each week, The words will be on the screen behind me, so I hope you'll follow along either in your own Bible or on the screen with the translation we'll use. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1, and we're going to look this morning all the way to chapter 41, verse 16, which gives us a pretty good idea of what's going on. After this, now this picks up obviously on chapter 39, this is after Joseph has gone to prison and he's risen to prominence in the prison. So after this, the the king of Egypt's cupbearer, it's like his butler, And his baker offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned to them, and he became their personal attendant. And they were in custody for some time. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt were confined in the prison. Each had a dream. Both had a dream on the same night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they looked distraught. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces sad today? We had dreams, they told him. There's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told told his dream to Joseph, in my dream, there was a vine in front of me. On the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is its interpretation, Joseph told him. The three branches are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. 
You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand the way you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well for you, remember that I was with you. Please show kindness to me by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was kidnapped in the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should put me in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was positive, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Three baskets of white bread were on my head. In the top basket were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of them, eating them out of the basket on my head. This is its interpretation, Joseph replied. The three baskets are three days. In just three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off you. I love that part. And hang you on a tree. Maybe I shouldn't love that part, but it's kind of funny. <clears throat> Not for the baker. The birds, <clears throat> the birds will eat the flesh from your body. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he gave a feast for all his servants. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position as cupbearer, and he placed a cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he had the chief baker, just as Joseph had explained to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The, the sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, full and good, came up one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven full good ones. Then Pharaoh woke up, and it was only a dream. When morning came, he was troubled. So he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I remember my faults. Pharaoh had been angry with his servant and put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guard. He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guard, was with us there. We told him our dreams. He interpreted our dreams for us and had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored, and the other man was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I'm not able to, Joseph answered. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I want to do two things today as a result of this scripture that we read. The first thing that I, that I want to do is to make a case that God has not and never will forget you. I want to prove this from the life of Joseph and from your life, and I want to do that quickly. But secondly, I want to help us leave here today with some action steps we can take when we feel as if or we think as if God has forgotten us. So first things first, you've got a bulletin somewhere. You've got something to write with, hopefully. I want you to, to write this down right in the margin of your Bible as, as sort of the, the point of this particular story. Write it on your hand, write it on your bulletin, write it backward on your forehead so you read it in the mirror in the morning. Whatever you do, write it somewhere. God does not forget. Write it somewhere. God does not forget. Maybe we need to say it out loud. God does not forget. Write it down, say it if, even if you don't believe it. God does not forget. 
I want to look at some proof very quickly from the life of Joseph. Uh, God did not forget Joseph, despite all that this incredible young man faced. I want to connect the dots real quick. If you've been with us, uh, you'll, you'll know we started in Genesis chapter 37. If you haven't, let me catch up real quick. In Genesis 37, the, the chapter opens, the story of Joseph opens with Joseph being the favored son of his father. His dad had 12 sons. Joseph was the 11th. He's the favored son, which was not usual for that time period. And though he's loved by his father, he's hated by his 10 older brothers. We saw that in, in chapter 37. They conspired to get rid of him. So in very swift action. They violently attack him. They rip off his outer garment. They throw him into a well. They have lunch, conspiring and figuring out what they're going to do to him. And eventually they sell him into, some, into slavery to some people who happen to be traveling by. Now as a slave, we see in Genesis chapter 39 that Joseph makes the most of the opportunity, rises to a position of prominence only to be accused of rape by the, the master's wife thrown into prison, and yet again makes the most of the opportunity, rising to prominence in the prison. As we see in today's episode, Joseph encounters two prisoners who had direct access to a man of great power, the Pharaoh, but he's forgotten. I'll give you a little spoiler alert. Coming up, what we have, maybe you don't like spoilers, but you can read it in your Bible, so we'll spoil it for you. Coming up, you see today at the end of our little episode, he gets an audience with the king. Eventually, he rises to become the prime minister, the second in command in all of Egypt. He saves the land from famine, and eventually he is responsible for rescuing his own family from starvation. This long saga from Genesis 37 all the way through chapter 50 ends with the words of Joseph as he looks back and he says, you, talking to his brothers, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. Joseph is able to look back and connect the dots. Now, if we look a little more closely, I think you can see how God had never forgotten him. In order for Joseph to arrive in Egypt and have power, which was God's plan all along, for him to be able to rescue the chosen family by being in Egypt and having power, first he had to get there, enter slavery. Had his brothers not hated him, they would have never sold him into slavery to people who took him to Egypt. There's how he got there. Next, in order for Joseph to gain access to power, he had to get close to Pharaoh, enter prison. (laughs) Because Joseph's credibility was high with his slave master, he wasn't executed after his rape accusation. Instead, he's thrown into prison where he meets two of Pharaoh's servants. You see the dots being connected. God had never forgotten him. In order for God to get all the credit for everything that happened in Joseph's life, Joseph had to be forgotten by everyone but God. So you have Pharaoh's cupbearer who enters the picture, who even though Joseph serves him well and gives him a favorable response to his dreams, the man forgets Joseph. And ultimately it is God alone who can take credit and give Joseph confidence to look back and say, God never forgot me. He was always with me. He planned it for good. There's proof in Joseph's life that God never forgets his children. There's also proof in your life that God has not forgotten you. There's some today that are here, and I really believe this. I don't believe, I just give a little hint. Let me step out of my notes for just a second. I don't believe that, that when the Lord puts a particular sermon together, 
that he, that he somehow forgets to bring certain people that actually need to hear it. <laughs> um, that has nothing to do with me. I just have seen God work. So I can say with confidence that there are some today who desperately need to hear the message that God does not forget. I don't know who you are. I don't know everybody's story. But I know that God does not put a sermon together for no particular purpose. He has a purpose for it to strike the hearts of those who he brings to hear it. God has not forgotten you. In the same way he did not forget Joseph, he has not forgotten you. Several weeks ago when we began this series, I read several God at work stories. Maybe you remember that if you were here. Uh, from people in our congregation. Those were absolutely and in, in incredibly powerful reminders of what God has done in our lives and what he currently is doing. So maybe this morning you would take just a brief moment and you'd reflect for just a second on your life and you'd look back. And you'd reflect on how God has protected you. You'd reflect on how He has led you. You'd reflect on how He's brought you through possible circumstances. How He's rescued you, encouraged you. He's been there for you. He's put certain people in your life that you could have never orchestrated to be there. He's demonstrated His constant presence in your life through it all. You may feel today like a failure, but God does not forget. You may feel today insignificant and completely unimportant, but God does not forget. You may have been passed over for promotion after promotion, and you find yourself in a dead-end job that you hate, but God does not forget. You may have a strong desire to get married, but you're still waiting today. I want you to know that God does not forget. You may be lonely, feeling abandoned. If you're just living out life's final few notes by yourself. But God does not forget. You may be tired of living a godly life because it doesn't seem to pay off in this world. But God does not forget. You look back over your life. And though you may see some ups and downs, and may, maybe even mostly downs, you can trace God's hand at work. God does not forget. The connecting dots in Joseph's life and in your life prove that to be true. God does not forget. There's your proof. From Joseph's life, from your life, God does not forget. And because He does not forget, there are at least two, you may find more, there are at least two action steps that I see from this particular story that we can begin to implement in our lives today and this week and from here moving forward. The first of which is to do all you can where you are. Do all you can where you are. A little closer look at Joseph's time as a prisoner gives us some, some help here. We know last week's sermon, chapter 39, that Joseph rose to prominence. He found favor in the eyes of the prison warden and was placed in charge of all of the prisoners. He's obviously making the most of, a, of what would otherwise be a very miserable experience. Uh, we, we see him and we think, well, he, he's gotten a raise. He's gotten a promotion. He's still in prison. All right? Let's keep that in mind. He's not a free man. And so when we see Joseph, we see a great example to follow. I want to challenge you, do all you can where you are in whatever position you may have. Genesis chapter 40, uh, the beginning of this, if you read it as a continuation of Genesis 39, which it is, you realize that Joseph goes from this position of prominence as the chief uh, jail officer 
to a demotion to now serving prisoners. His rise to prominence is interrupted by these two guys. And so at the end of chapter 39, he's in charge as best he can be. Beginning of chapter 40, he's demoted to be the servant of two prisoners. Never mind that these two guys are servants of the king. Never mind that, that they might have some kind of access to the power that God would want him to have. He's just been relegated to the bottom again. It seems as if Joseph's life just goes up for a while and, and then he comes crashing back down. But I believe that Joseph by this point has learned to serve God no matter what position he's in. Whether he's high up on the totem pole or he's at the very bottom getting stepped on. He served the Lord as a slave, as a prisoner. And now in chapter 40, he will serve the Lord as a servant to prisoners. He became content, and I find this amazing, to serve the Lord even if that meant a demotion to a position far beneath his skill set, far beneath what he probably thought he could do. I wonder if the same could be said of you and of me. Are you willing to, to sit the bench even though you're the best player on the team? Are you willing to play out a position, so to speak, if that's what God wants? Even though your dreams and your ambitions and your hopes that God has given you go far beyond your current position, your current location. You know, it's easy to be faithful and productive when you're in a position of prominence. When you're way up there, it's really easy to be faithful and productive. It's far more difficult when you'd rather be somewhere else. When you'd rather not have those situations that you currently face. Or even when you feel like you deserve to be somewhere else. And since we're in the middle of basketball season, let me illustrate this with a little basketball story. In 1980, in the NBA Finals, the Lakers, Los Angeles Lakers, played the Philadelphia 76ers, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar against Dr. J. Now, I don't remember that. I have to admit to you, I was a little too young at the point. But some of you do, not to make you feel old this morning, but some of you do remember that particular series. Now, during Game 5 of the 1980 NBA Finals, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got hurt. He messed up his ankle. Couldn't make the trip to Philadelphia for Game 6. But the Lakers had a rookie point guard from Michigan State named Irvin Magic Johnson who later, of course, became one of the greatest players the NBA has ever seen. He was a point guard, but his coach for game six asked him to play a different position. It wasn't shooting guard or small forward or power forward. It was center, Kareem's position. Now, Kareem, of course, was a Hall of Famer in his own right, and when he retired, was a leading scorer in NBA history. And yet here's Magic Johnson, this rookie, who's called upon to play out of position. Despite playing a different position, in fact, he played all five positions in that game, despite, despite playing out of position all game, Magic scored 42 points, had 15 rebounds, and dished out seven assists and one finals MVP honors. You may say, well, that's really impressive. What I find more impressive is to think about what if Magic had said no? What if he told his coach, no, 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 I may be a rookie, but I'm a point guard. I get the ball. No, no, I don't play center. Yeah, I may be six foot eight, but I don't play center. Do you know who I am? They call me magic. 
We'll never know what would have happened if he had turned down the call of his coach. We'll never know. But you and I get to see the amazing results that were produced when a player submitted to the wishes of his coach and did whatever was needed at the moment. It's the same way in our lives. If God wants us to do something or play a position unfamiliar to us, even to sit the bench it may feel to wait and wait and wait for our opportunity, our response according to Scripture and according to the life of Joseph is simply to trust and to submit no matter how difficult it may be. And it may be very difficult. You and I, I really believe, have no idea what God can do through an experience like that. I believe it's clear that Joseph was determined to play the role of servant in the same way that he would later play the role of leader. He would be faithful and obedient and submissive no matter his position. He would do all he could where he was. I guarantee you those guys he served in prison were served with excellence. And I wonder about us. Does your attitude and your work ethic reflect a true commitment to the Lord? Your effort on the job or in the classroom, does it display a trust that God has not forgotten you and what you do matters? It's in the seemingly meaningless and the mundane that we truly reflect what we really believe about God. In the meaningless and the mundane. It's there where we truly display what's in our hearts. God does not forget. So as a result, you can do all you can wherever He may place you. Do all you can also by using the gifts that God has given you. Genesis chapter 40, verse 5, we see Joseph encounter these two prisoners. They have dreams. Joseph can interpret dreams. You would figure that at this point Joseph would say, you know what? I've been through enough. I'm not putting myself out there anymore. I'm done. The temptation, obviously, to hide his talents, to bury his gifts, was heightened by the fact he's just been demoted to prisoner servant. But that's not what we see in his life, him hiding his gifts. When those two guys have dreams, we don't see indifference. What we see is concern. Why are your faces sad today, he says. We see him following God's lead, even in prison, in a position he'd rather not be in. He, he follows God's lead to use his gifts, and to have compassion, to help those that he could help. Verse 8, he says, tell me your dreams. God can interpret them. You let me know what they are. God gave him incredible gifts that he was not about to squander just because he was not in the position that he wanted or thought he should be in. He had every reason to play spiritual possum, just to play dead. To become jaded and bitter and unwilling to help. But instead of all that, he used what God has given him. Faithfulness to God doesn't begin when you feel like you've arrived. It's not when faithfulness to God begins, when you feel like you've finally reached the mountaintop. It begins now. No matter where you may be in whatever position you may have, so I wonder, what, what gifts and talents has God given you that you, because you're not on the mountaintop, have refused to use? Refused to put into play? And in what ways can you currently use them wherever you may be, in school, work, church, wherever? I believe that God values your faithfulness and mine at every point along the journey. Now, I say that as a person who doesn't like the journey. For full disclosure, I can't stand the journey. <laughs> 
I just want to get from point A to point B as quick as we can get there. Maybe some of you are like that. This is a tremendous lesson for me. God, just so you know, God beats me up every week with what I'm going to preach. I'd really rather he not do that sometime, but I can't get away from it. I believe God values every point along the journey. And our faithfulness matters at every point, whether we're on the mountaintop, we're in the valley, or somewhere in between. So do all you can in whatever position you have, and do all you can by using your gifts so that you can be successful in God's eyes. It's easy to fast forward this story and assume that Joseph was successful in God's eyes at the end when he's the right-hand man to the king. It's easy to overlook how Joseph was successful in God's eyes through this entire story. He says in verse 8, don't interpretations belong to God? They say, we've had a dream nobody can interpret. Can you help us out? He doesn't say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I got a degree in dream interpretation not long ago. Master's degree. And in fact, nobody's listened to me until this point, and so I'm going to unload all that I know on you two fine gentlemen because you've asked me, and I've noticed you've had a dream and you're a little bit sad. He says instead, don't interpretations belong to God. Clearly, Joseph had won favor in the eyes of his slave master, in the eyes of his prison warden, and he would soon, some amount of favor at least, in the eyes of those whose dreams he would interpret. But that's not his goal. His goal is always focused on the Lord himself. Don't interpretations belong to God? You tell me, and I'll ask God, and he will give you the answer. We have the benefit of seeing Joseph rewarded publicly for his faithfulness, but, but I really believe that God was pleased with Joseph long before his public appearance. Long before that. We've got such a jaded and, and misconstrued view of what success is because of the world that we live in. And in particular because of the, the country that we live in, though as great as America is, we've got a really jaded and, and misconstrued view of what real success is all about. We believe that success in our world today centers around money and fame and incredible talent and extraordinary accomplishments or power or good looks or whatever the current theme is in our society. Do you realize that God's definition includes none of that? I did, maybe you already know that. Let's just God's definition does not include any of that stuff. God doesn't care. If you have tons of money, lots of fame, incredible talent, extraordinary accomplishments, power, or good looks, if it's all apart from Him, He doesn't care. Let's be honest. We can pursue all those things and be as far from God as someone who is in the gutter, stuck in sin, we might say, and can't get themselves out. Joseph possessed all of those things. Money, fame, incredible talent, extraordinary accomplishment, power, good looks, the Bible says. He was a good-looking fella. But none of them guaranteed success in God's eyes. Not a single one. There's a guy named Kent Hughes, who I had the privilege of, of listening to a few weeks ago, and I picked up one of his books. He's a longtime pastor of a church called College Church in Chicago. And he's now retired, and he, and he writes different commentaries on books of the Bible and so on. He's a really intelligent guy and a very good pastor for a long time. He wrote a book that I picked up, a very insightful book, on how God views success. And chapter after chapter, he says and writes about that success, according to God, is based on faithfulness. Do you remain faithful and obedient to God? It's based upon your loving attitude and actions, based upon service, prayer, a growing faith in the Lord, holiness, and your attitude. A little different from fame 
and talent and accomplishments and power. We see those things that Kent Hughes mentions present in the life of Joseph long before his ascension to power in Egypt. He was faithful to God at all times. All times. He loved and served even those who had wronged him. And he obviously kept in continual communication with the Lord through prayer because we see over and over that was with him. It's impossible to see that and not assume Joseph was talking with the Lord as well. God was always on his mind and his lips. His faith was increased and displayed as we see. Don't interpretations belong to God? He believed. Joseph was also a very holy man. Not perfect, but we don't see any explicit sin in his life mentioned in Genesis 37 to 50. He was holy. And amazingly, his attitude was also upbeat despite all the trials that he faced. I wonder if you and I are successful according to God's standards. I believe that outward success, worldly success, is far more attainable and far less noble than success in God's eyes. It's far more attainable, far less noble, certainly far less godly. Joseph did all he could where he was in whatever position he had, using his gifts so that he might be found successful in God's eyes, the only audience that mattered to him. The truth is that you and I may be failing in the eyes of the world. But you can be successful in the eyes of God. And the opposite is also true. You may be successful in the eyes of the world and failing in the eyes of God. The choice is yours. So we're going to split this sermon into two parts. Because you know I haven't gotten to the second part yet. The second part's good. We're going to split it into two parts. So I want to close this morning with going back to where we started, and that is proof that God has not forgotten Joseph and has not forgotten you. You fast forward this story, the story of Israel. The promise starts in Genesis 12 that all nations will be blessed because of Abraham's children, and ultimately the one, the promised Messiah, would come through him. And the Bible says that in the fullness of time, at the right moment, God had not forgotten. He sent Jesus at the right moment to fulfill the promise he made in Genesis chapter 12. The promise that he reaffirmed over and over. And all the dots get connected and we see God never forgot them. And because of Jesus... And because of His Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, in the same way He was present in Joseph's life, you can be guaranteed that God, because of Jesus, has not forgotten you either. I want to end this morning where we started. God has not forgotten you, but this is not a pep talk to go out and feel better about yourself. It is a call for utter dependence on Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is our only hope. He is our only salvation. And He alone will never forget us. Everyone else may turn against you. Life itself may put you on your ear. But God, through Jesus Christ, proves that He never forgets, that He always loves, and that He offers salvation this morning. And it's not just an offer, I don't believe, of that one-time conversion experience, though obviously we know that is crucial. It's where you start. But it is the ongoing presence and power of God in your life that He promises because of salvation. God has not forgotten you. 
He's proved it in the Scripture. He's proved it in your life. The call this morning is to respond to Him through repentance of sin and through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads? You may be that person this morning who feels forgotten. But today you see the truth from Scripture and the hope found in Jesus Christ. Would you, would you give your life to Him? Would you submit everything? Say, God, I don't know where you want to take me, but I know without Jesus, I've got nothing. Maybe for the very first time, you'd submit your life to Him and call out to Him for salvation and say, I give it all to you. And I repent, I turn away from my sin, and God, I, I want you and nothing else. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. You'd pray between you and the Lord. I'd love to celebrate with you if that's a commitment you make today. I'd love to talk with you after the service. Or maybe you're the person who's saying, I already know Jesus, but man, it feels like God has forgotten me. Maybe today you'd hold on to the reminder that God does not forget, so you'd be challenged. Do all you can where you are because God has not forgotten you because He's with you. And you'd use your gifts and talents in a fresh new way beginning this afternoon or tomorrow morning at school or at work in your home. God has not forgotten. He does not forget. Heavenly Father, thank you for that truth. I pray that those who do not know you, Lord, will be well aware this morning of their need for you. That they would be convicted of sin and drawn close to you to receive your salvation. Lord, for those who feel forgotten, I pray that you'd give them renewed hope. Not just hope that will last through this afternoon and then soon be forgotten, but hope, Lord, that never ends. Help us, Lord, as we encounter those situations to simply trust you and do all that we can where we are until you lead us on. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.